I trust that everybody can be their own best teacher, their own guru, their own healer, that it's all within them. And that's if I could teach them anything, it'd be that. It'd be self-reliance, autonomy, and trusting one's own abilities. Welcome to the Juggling the Chaos of Recovery podcast, where we focus on health and wellness and overcoming all types of addictions. You're in the right place if you're a mom, dad, sibling, or caregiver who has a loved one who is or was struggling with an eating disorder or any other kind of addiction. In a time where everything seems heavy, I'm here to bring you a very real yet lighthearted take on what the heck we're all supposed to do with our lives while we care for our loved ones who are struggling. One thing holds true throughout it all. You can't juggle the chaos without smiling, at least a little bit. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm your host, Moira Gorski. There is a uh, newer type of platform out there that's called uh, matchmaker.fm. And my guest today, Nicholas Goodman, is someone that I reached out to, or perhaps you reached out to me. I'm not, I don't remember. Doesn't matter. We're connected today. And he's coming to me, coming to us today, uh, talking with me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Nicholas, he is a counselor, a massage therapist, and he is a writer as he writes about his life and his journeys through life. And so I'm just really grateful that you joined me today, Nicholas. Thank you for having me. I'm really happy that we've connected. Yes, I am. I am as well. And, um, you know, I, as I shared before we went live, you know, I was reviewing my notes, if you will, about our conversation today. And what stuck out to me was not only your travel, uh, we talked about that when we connected first. And I, I believe that I know for myself, I've learned so much as I've traveled to other countries and other states and other cultures and things like that. So uh, really love the idea of talking about that today, but also you've been involved with hospice throughout the years. And uh, with the passing of my mother just a week ago um, and her being involved in hospice during her dying days, if you will, um, I thought it would be great to have a conversation about that and perhaps just me sharing what I saw and then maybe kind of what, what you've learned from those experiences and maybe even in the beginning, just why you were interested in in being in that being in that you know that area and helping those that are dying. So let's just start. Let's start start there. If you can, um, again, I believe truly know in my heart that these hospice workers, the caregivers that care for those who are in their last days, are truly truly have a heart that's much larger and softer than so many. And it was, uh, I'm so thankful for them as they took care of my mother as her health declined and, and also took care of us. You know, my father who was in the apartment with my mother and us who came in to visit here and there and spent time with my mother, they truly are angels. And um, you must have a very big heart for helping others if that's a place that you wanted to spend your time. Oh, thanks for saying that. It really is. Hospice is it's a marvelous place, and despite the the sorrow and the tragedy at times that surrounds it, the people there just warm the environment. It's got the the kindest, most loving people. So I'm fortunate to have spent some of my life with them. But my my journey into hospice really, I never predicted it. You know, I just took the journey. It was at the time I was working as an addictions counselor. And I saw the correlation between grief and bereavement and addictions and recovery, for that matter. So I went back to university to study thanatology, which is death and dying, grief and bereavement. And at the end of my studies, I needed to do a, a placement, an internship. And I chose hospice and I, I followed it there. And after... A few months, was it a few months? Probably a few months, I left addiction counseling and focused more on hospice work. I just, I found it more fulfilling at the time. Not that there was anything wrong with addiction counseling. I was just evolving in my practice of supporting people spiritually, emotionally. Um, massage therapy came in at hospice. That's where the, the physicality and the massage came in as well. So they just all seemed to come together to lead me into that work. But I never planned on it per se. I just took the journey and there I was. 
Mm-hmm. So you say that you felt like there was some correlation between addictions and and death and dying. So talk about that. Well, I think it relates. When I look at my own journey, um, being in recovery myself and my experiences, I saw how not only was my um, addiction triggered from unresolved grief, but then in order to get clean in itself was such an act of bereavement and loss and intense grief because I was leaving behind everything. The the people I held dear, the places I held dear, the, the concept of self that I had built in my life around was shattered. Everything was involved with this substance, with this persona, with everything. So I saw in my own journey and other people, there's a need to grieve not only the things that probably led to the addiction, but then also to grieve letting the addiction itself go. So it's just a constant progression of grief that I noticed on the journey on recovery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the gentleman I just spoke with, he said something very similar. Well, he said, you know, he's been three years sober. I think he's 30 some years. I mean, he started drinking when he was 14. And he said, I had to give up that I had to put death to, or I had to give up th- that friend or whatever that I made at age 14, you know, and mm-hmm. I've been f- basically friends with for the last 30 years and, and yeah, change. Yeah. And just, I mean, put that, put that away. And he said, I mean, we were talking about faith and we were talking about Jesus and he said, it was like a crucifixion. I had to kill it and put death to it. And the first three months of my true recovery, you know, I'll I'll let, you know, people go back and listen to that episode, Richard Wasson, but, you know, he had to put, you know, he had to kill that. And the first three months were so, so difficult. And then he felt like he entered the promised land and this land of beauty and opportunity and possibilities. But, um, and yet there, and I shared with him that a, a gal that I had coffee with a couple of weeks ago, who was sharing her, um, uh, re- her, her sobriety story, she talked about the same thing. She said, when I decided to get clean and sober, I had to give up. I had to just give all that up. I got a divorce. She said, you know, I had to give up my friends. She said, I still don't have a whole lot of friends today because I had to give that up in order to move forward into a different you know, a different life. And that's, and that's what it is. It's when I saw people who were successful in recovery and the odds are really stacked against addicts. I mean, it's heartbreaking to see how few find lasting sobriety of, of quality and depth. And the people who do, the commonality that I've seen is they are prepared to sacrifice, to make the necessary sacrifices to gain the, the gift that is sobriety, the gift that is life. And it's difficult to shatter the illusion of the substances, drugs, what they provide. And when per- a person's in that sick state and they finally step aside from it and, you know, find that promised land, as you said, after they get some sobriety under their belt, they evolve, they put in some work and they look and they go, what the hell was I even infatuated with? And that's the part, the people who find lasting quality sobriety, they shatter the illusion that drugs and alcohol have held before them and that in many ways, society holds before them too. I mean, it's so glorified. And so but when you step beside it and recognize I've given up, you know, in this regard with the substance itself, nothing. And I've gained everything. It's just changing the mindset, allowing the, the healing to take place, participating in it. And then you can reach that promised land. And some people do it in three months. Some people takes years upon years. Some people sadly never see it and succumb to their addictions. But Again, I think it's all in what are you prepared to give up? And everything that I gave up, I loved dearly, whether it was my using friends, whether it was my lifestyle, the persona that I created, the places I frequented, it was everything. It was a cleansing and it was difficult. And I'd say for me, it probably took years and I had little glimpses and I was really fortunate by you know, the creator's grace to be given people to guide me and to love me, especially in the infancy. But I'd say it probably took two years to start to establish quality relationships and to trust and open up because I had that, 
that mindset that most addicts have of kind of a, a militarized mindset of, you know, these people I'm friends with have been dying, at least the way I experienced it. They were either thrown in jail, dying. So I, I didn't get too close. So that carried with me into sobriety. So to finally open up to love somebody, have them love me, to to create a friendship, not based upon drugs and alcohol, but on genuine substance, not these synthetic kinds, but genuine substance. So yeah, it's huge. It's all loss. A loss and gain. Yeah. Well, yeah. And like I think you said, that's really important is that the ability to be willing to do that. I mean, I've mm-hmm. heard that. I've heard that from my daughter um, during her journey the last six years. You know, many of those things that you just said, you know, she'd get close to people in treatment and then she'd come home or they'd leave. And then those those relationships didn't last. You know, she went back in treatment. They went back in treatment. They Oh, those two started dating each other. They, you know, like it didn't last. I'm like, well, but they were, and she would, she, I remember her saying also one time she had met these in a particular program. And then a year later, she said, you know what? Almost everybody that I met there, they're back in. And it's mm-hmm. just, you know, that cycle of just, and, but part of the point is that she held on to the, she tried to grab onto those relationships but these people weren't well. And so they didn't, they weren't able to have those true connections and um, that authenticity in a, in a relationship and a friendship because they were so deep in their, you know, their struggle. And that's the difficult part. I can tell you it's, I, I have about 12 and a half years sobriety and in truth, I'm not friends with many addicts and not that I wouldn't be. It's just successful, healthy, recovering people are scarcity. So I have a few and I had one who was a dear mentor and friend to me and um, we were extremely close. He moved away though now, but we had a friendship of 10 years of loving each other, challenging each other, supporting each other. But the thing was, most people that I see is they, they cling to their addiction still as a form of identity. You know, I'm Nick, I'm an alcoholic, I'm an addict. I don't see it that way. For me, the clients that I work with, especially when I left behind addiction counseling, but hospice work, uh, massage therapy, psychotherapy, they never guess that I'm an addict until I tell them. And even then, I won't even tell everyone that it's a judgment. It's just, it may not be relevant. It's a small little pebble on a vast beach uh, of rocks. It's one little piece of my identity, which is pretty minute compared to the millions it stands against. So some people still cling to that suffering. You know, I'm an addict and and I, I get it. I did it for a few years and tried to to qualify how horrible my experiences were. But once you put in the work and heal and you recognize that we all have a tragic story, everybody has suffered, everybody has lost, everybody. And let us let us find commonality in our grievances, but not pick a little piece and say, oh, you know, I, I did this and this makes me even more whatever, whatever it may be, more punished by myself or whatever. But You've suffered, I've suffered, we'd all, we've all suffered. And in ways it has shaped us, but we don't need to cling to that one thing as an identity. Cause I, I mean, that's just how I view it at least. It's, I'm not bondage by my addiction. Well, and I, I think that what I continue to hear on this podcast is that there's so much, and again, seeing it with my own life and my daughter's experience and see the experience I've had there with other people is it's all of this like looking back of like, oh, woe is me and look at this. And oh, it's just been mm-hmm. so many years and all of this and look at this and look at what I've lost. Look at the friends I've lost. Look at the, oh, I wanna go to school. I wanna have a job, but I can't do that. And so all this like looking back instead of turning around and looking forward into the possibility of the future. And yet I know that it's so difficult. I've seen that with my daughter. I saw that even with myself in my college years. I was really unsure about what my future looked like. And I had a hard time making those decisions and taking those steps forward. Um, And yet I know for myself as I did, and I was more confident in what I was doing and happier with my life and my decisions, then my recovery, if you will, got, you know, that much easier and, you know, and all that. But that's what I feel like happens so much is all of this looking into the back into our past and identifying with that struggle. And I'm the first to say, you know, the magic is in our mess and there's 
you know, there's beautiful things in that struggle and we should not be ashamed to talk, you know, to talk about our struggles and yet we shouldn't live there. Well, that's the, the part of the past needs to be learned from and celebrated, but it's more of the emotionality, the attachments that I see drag people down. You know, there's a way to heal that so that it doesn't become a loss, it becomes a triumph. And it's about shifting that perspective in an artistic way. And it takes years, it takes years, I, I believe. I mean, looking at my addiction and the stories at this point seem like a distant life, but I still remember them. And I draw on them for wisdom and relation. If I'm working with an addictions client or someone that I can relate to some degree to, to possibly something they've been through and use my own to encourage someone else on their path, my own story to encourage someone on their path. But it's that whole attachment to it, the the emotionality when you see someone get dragged in. And I see it a lot with um, therapy clients when they start to relay a story and you can tell that they are pulled into it. They're, they're not just narrating it, they're lost in it. And that's the part of when I'll nudge them and say, okay, come back. Okay, we're looking back. Let's look back. But you don't need to be completely consumed by it. You're not there anymore. Mm -hmm. Grab that part of you that is, and let's look at it together and learn. Yeah. And, you know, I've learned that reminds me of just the work that I've done on creating boundaries. I mean, that's kind of what I've done even with uh, sharing the story, you know, because so many, again, my daughter's been in a struggle for six years and, so many of my friends and clients and family know about it. And so often when I have a conversation with them, how's your daughter? And I had found myself just being pulled in there sometimes to tell, oh, and there's this and there's that. And and so working on creating that boundary to say, because it's helpful for me, if sometimes I, I now often say, you know what, she's at a place that's giving her some help. And we're hopeful that she gets better. And how are you doing today? And just setting that boundaries instead of being pulled in there. Because, you know, I have work to do. I have people to help. And I have, you know, and when I'm pulled into that conversation over and over again, it brings me down and it makes me lose hope that my daughter will ever recover through this. So being able to set that boundary, which has been difficult at times, and yet I see how it serves me better if I can set that boundary. And just like you said, not be pulled into that past or into that story. Mm -hmm. And that's the part where you articulated that beautifully, but having that, that power to set boundaries with others and yourself of saying, you know, I'm not going to go there right now. And I do that even in my own recovery. I, I'm, I warm to the idea of being triggered. It rarely happens now. But if I see an opportunity and I'm in a good space and I go, this will trigger me and I'll go, well, let's see, bring it. And then maybe it will, maybe it won't. But if it does, I can put it to rest so quickly because of that mindset. However, that being said, there are certain times even with a strong recovery where let's say someone invites me to a gathering or something and people will be drinking and I go, no, today's not the day. And to have that self-insight to say, like you did, you know what, I'm not going there right now. And we have that freedom. As long as we have a self-insight and are on good terms with ourselves, we can choose when to engage with a particular thing and to know not to be swamped by it or overcome or pulled down or and to step aside and go, you know what, today's not the day. I'm going to sit this one out. Mm -hmm. Whether it's a topic, whether it's a party, whether it's anything. So that's a beautiful point. Yeah. Well, and that, that's, yeah, it's really good. Cause it's, um, I love that. That's like, I think when we're on our a good space with ourselves, because I often, I don't, I don't like to tell other people's stories or whatever, but I often like with my husband, sometimes he'll say stuff. Like when I make a comment, he's like, well, why would you do that? Or why would you say that? Or why would you go that? And I'm like, again, when there's days that I'm feeling strong, I say the same thing. I'm like inside my head, bring it on. Come on. I'll have a conversation about it. I'll go toe to toe with the best of them. I couldn't do that sometimes in the past, but some days I'm like, come on, let's have a good talk about this. And we can agree just about this. What we talking about a little bit before, but about the vaccine and about the pandemic and all that. I ran into a client of mine when I was picking up pizza on my way home from my uh, mom's apartment in the last couple of weeks and um, haven't seen him 
well, haven't seen him in forever. We've hardly seen anybody in forever, but, you know, saw him and, you know, he asked if I'd gotten the shot and there's this and that, and we're having this discussion and he's clearly on the other side of things. And, um, and it was really, it was really comforting that, I don't know if that's the word, but it was reassuring or comforting that he said, you know, we can agree to disagree. Cause I had my statement and I said, this is, and I said, everybody with the work that I do in wellness and what I've learned in wellness, along with my nursing, I, I try to educate people on what I've learned and what's out there. And then I say, you have the choice, right? Everybody has a choice, but make it an educated choice, learn about that. And, and also I I'll honor your choice. If you'll please honor my choice. And that's what I said to him. Cause I'm like, cause again, some people would say, well, why would you even get into a discussion? I'm like with this guy, I feel good. Cause I know he's not gonna, I, we've had enough discussions that he's like, and even as we ended the conversation, he's like, hey, it'll be great. Like summertime, come over, have a beer. We'll sit by the fire. We'll talk about stuff like this. And we'll agree to disagree. I think those are awesome conversations to have, you know? Yeah, exactly. It requires a certain kind of maturity that um, some people don't have, though. Mm-hmm. And a, a type of definitely humility and um, maturity to recognize, you know, let me, I, I have a dear friend and, um, He's a minister, and I, of course, am very spiritual, but I don't walk one particular path, if you will. I walk my own path, but I don't subscribe to one faith or everyone will look at it. And he knows that. And we meet once a month for lunch to discuss life, death, philosophy, God, or there not being a God. And we have enough humility to entertain the other person's beliefs and to really find beauty in it. And to celebrate the similarities that we find between us. But at the end of the day, we both say, I don't know. You know, it's a great mystery. And we embrace it as adventures, if you will. And when I have conversations like that with people, when it's more of, let's be flexible in our opinions. Let's let's not be rigid and and just firm and, you know, so resolved on I know the truth. But let's say, let's allow room for doubt of our own beliefs as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love those conversations. Yeah, that's good. And when I think about my mother, since she's so foremost in my mind with her passing, I mean, that's one of the one of the difficult difficulties that I had with her is that strong. And and yet it was good because as I honored her in her service, my final point was she taught me about faith and yes, mm-hmm. very rigid you know, we go to church, we wear a dress, we believe, we go up, you know, we get baptized, all of that. And I moved away from that as I moved away from home, as many do. And yet when my life became extremely difficult and the health of my daughter was in jeopardy, I called upon that God that she taught me to believe in. And it became a faith that has that I'll be forever grateful for. And yet she lived in this space of like, you have to be this way and you have to believe this way and i had a hard time with that because i like that flexibility i mean i would date men and she'd send me a you know they were a lutheran so she'd send me a book on what's wrong with all the lutherans you know and i married a catholic and god forbid i mean i was raised in the baptist church and i married a catholic you know those catholics so there was always this even though she had this love for teaching other people and in showing other people this love of a God that she believed in, it was also very restrictive and judgmental. And if you went against that, you felt like you were, you know, she was judging you like you were wrong when you Mm -hmm. wanted to maybe have some flexibility in your thinking. And that's where I personally believe doubt is such an intricate part of faith. And to always have a little bit of it. That way we can question. And my concept of God and my belief in God allows that. And the God that I believe in welcomes questioning. And I mean, I don't know how far it'll get me, mm-hmm. but it welcomes it. It's, I don't think I will burn in hell for saying like, what the hell? But faith without doubt can can be very dangerous. And I And I've seen throughout history, throughout life, the conflicts that it has created. And so I'm very, 
leery uh, of, <laughs> you know, the resolute, no budging faith in something. Because I, I believe it's held in place largely by fear then mm-hmm. of I need to believe this. And God forbid that, you know, I entertain something that contradicts it, where doubt allows it to grow in different avenues. It's, you know, if you trim a tree and it's just growing straight up and you keep trimming it, it'll just be this stump that grows up. But if you take a tree and you don't restrict it and do this, you'll watch it just bloom into this beautiful crown. And that's how I view a belief is that, yes, it should be trimmed. It should be go around, see what works, but don't keep it so restrictive. Allow it the freedom to grow and allow people and their beliefs to surprise you and to expand your own. And at the end of the day, the worst thing, if we try someone's faith or their belief, the worst thing is we go, you know what, this isn't true to me now at this point in time. However, I've had some things introduced to me and five years later, I go, you know what? I, I see it now. Mm-hmm. So again, it's that ability to be humble and to contemplate things that contradict our own beliefs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And being strong in our own belief enough to be able to, again, challenge or have doubt or, or let what I saw with my mother again, love her. But what I saw with her is just let other people have their, like honor them for the beliefs that they have and holds and be okay with that again, to become a tree of a different color or a tree with wider branches than the skinny branches or whatever, you know, metaphor you want to use. Um, I really had a difficult time with that for many, many years. And yet many people reached out during her dying days and even spoke at a couple of gentlemen who I mean, they were in, my parents were involved in prison ministry for 25 years. They reached a lot of people and they helped people see a better way. And one of the gentlemen spoke at her service and the impact that my folks had on her life, his life was instrumental in him becoming who he is today and a better person and sharing faith. I mean, he's become an ordained minister and he you know, is in a beautiful, wonderful space in his life. And that's because of my mother, you know, and that faith that she, and yet there was that, I just had that, like, for so many years, I'm like, can you just see outside of your box? Like, it's okay. And give me that because I just struggled with her accepting me for the beliefs that I had and the life that I lived. And cause I didn't, I mean, I'm, I don't know, I'm doing okay. And I, 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 you know, for so long, I was like for many years, and that's kind of my old inner child type of healing that I continue on from day to day. Cause I was like, I just wanted to be seen for me. Like, okay, I'm doing things different than my siblings. I'm doing things different than you. And let me go for a while to discover and also like honor me for who I am. Cause it's okay. I mean, I think I'm living a pretty good life. Like, is it that bad? And I felt I lived in that space of her judging me. And that's the part of, of course, she had her beautiful qualities. And one could even admire that faith that, you know, I believe this without wavering doubt. And I'm sure that probably helped her, especially when confronting death Mm -hmm. and difficult things like that. However, especially in hospice work, I've seen it everywhere, but in hospice work, the need for freedom and autonomy the need for someone to make their own decisions and be their own person and to believe what they believe and to celebrate that and to rejoice in and to not think that I know a better way. And for me, it takes, uh, it takes a lot of patience and um, trust in other people's abilities, especially working with addicts or hospice or anything is that it's their journey. And I don't know what's best for them at all times. God forbid I make a call that I think is best and it blows up in their face. There goes everything. I mean, it could, you're playing with people's lives, especially in recovery. And if I say, you need to do this, it's, I I step aside and I go, do I know that? I'd rather companion them. And it's more of a thing of um, Socrates coined the, the Greek term myudics, and it translates to midwifery. And I believe that is what a great companion does is they are a midwife to someone as they find their own way and their own truth. So I sit there and I might ask a few things and I might teach a few things about various things. But at the end of the day, 
I'm just accompanying them on their journey. It's theirs to take. It's not me to drag them by the collar and say, come over here and follow me. And I found the promised land and come this way. I don't know because what works for me may not work for them. So it's more of, I trust in their ability. I trust that everybody can be their own best teacher, their own guru, their own healer, that it's all within them. And that's if I could teach them anything, it'd be that. It'd be self-reliance, autonomy, and trusting one's own abilities. That's really good. It's really good. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, it's, and again, I just reflect on my mother's life. And as I said, before we went live, I mean, I was able to honor her and, you know, show, you know, talk about the things that she did teach me. But I, I don't know, I'm just, I think I'm a perpetual learner. And I just, I think sometimes an awful lot, and it keeps me awake at night. But these are the things I think about. It's like, you know what, it's not a beautiful way to say things like, I just, and I say that often in my business, like with helping people discover a more natural way to live. I'm like, I just want to come alongside you, show you what I've learned. Maybe it'll help you. Maybe you'll teach me something along the way, right? And together, mm -hmm. we can just go on a better journey of life into a better space. And I think that's just a, it just feels good. That's a beautiful way of thinking of life's journey yeah it's the whole companioning and i feel some people with their beliefs feel superior and it's more of you know follow me i know the way if not you're lost when it's no walk beside me and let us marvel at the things we discover together it's that step aside from the fear a lot of people cling to beliefs out of fear and it's i need to believe this or what happened to this? Where for me, I think it's an essential part. It's, I have friends who are, as I said, a Christian minister. I have a few friends who are Christian ministers. And then I have friends who are atheists. And then I have Hindu friends and Muslims. And I like to learn from them all. And the one similarity is we all respect each other's beliefs. It's more of that is beautiful. And I can celebrate the beauty in your faith. And I can see that. And sometimes there's similarities that we can really deepen both of our understandings and see this universality in them. And so that's my fundamental philosophy. Whenever anyone asks me, it's about humility and curiosity and wonder. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And have you learned that a lot as you've, because you've done some traveling in your life and have you learned that as you've just traveled around and been introduced to other cultures and people and whatnot? I mean, how did you, gain all of this wisdom well <laughs> certainly the um travel for me it just accentuates even more that just because i think something should be some way or my culture does doesn't make it so so when i've went to other cultures and seen their customs and how foreign they are to mine i don't say well they're wrong for doing this or anything i i try it out and I see validity in it. And I, I think the beginning line, and I'm, uh, I might bastardize it and screw it up, but the beginning line of the Odyssey, they say, tell me muse of the wandering man who sacked the sacred citadel of Troy and traveled the world and learned the minds of many. And for the ancient Greeks, Odysseus was the most cunning, brilliant person. And the reason for that is right in that line of the man traveled the world and lived the minds or learned the minds of many. So to meet people of different cultures, different faiths, different upbringings, different familial ideals, everything. And to say, wow, that's beautiful too. Or, you know what, maybe saying, you know what, I don't like that. That's not for me. You can do it all you want, but that's not for me. So that traveling and the humility to look stupid too. I mean, when I've traveled and done things that are, um, you know, way out there and I catch everyone staring at me or I don't know how to use a gas pump or I don't know how to <laughs> use a machine and I can't translate and just the humility of accepting help and standing out. And I love that whole concept about travel. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I hope to get back there soon, you know, to get, because I, yeah, I love to love to travel um, as well. Do you have a favorite place where you've traveled to? I have two places that I have to frequent every year. And last year was the first time in forever that I didn't go. And one is Greece and the other is the American Southwest. I love both those places and I need to go. They're just, they offer me different 
different kinds of spiritual sanctuary. I find Greece for me is taps into this ancient source. I just love ancient Greece and it's beautiful and refined and poetic and lyrical. And then I go to the Southwest and it's just raw and I'm sitting in the desert by myself sweating and it's <laughs> uncomfortable and I'm eating Chef Boyardee and there's nothing glorious <laughs> in that. <sense. laughs> so those three places I absolutely adore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have yet to be to Greece and I would love to for, um, it wasn't a big, you know, growing up, going to school, I, you know, we took European history and perhaps it was my teacher who had these shoes that just creaked, you know, when he walked. And I was just, I mean, I don't remember everything, but I remember that, you know, he used to walk along the floor, this little, little guy. And um, I just did not care for European history. And yet, as I've gotten older, I've just learned to, um, you know, appreciate that. And like watching a show like The Crown, I really was fascinated by that because I love a good drama, a good movie. And I've, and something that I can learn. I mean, I learned a lot about the monarchy that I didn't know by watching, you know, that be it that it's, you know, because some would argue that it's not 100% true. And I'm like, whatever, I don't, I'm that type of person. Like, like, if you tell me something's like, you know, how much does it cost? Well, it's, I don't know, it's close to $100. I'm good with that. Others, maybe perhaps the analytical sister of mine, you know, she has to know that it's $98.75, you know. I'm like, I don't care. It's just close to 100 But again, that's that whole part of what we take for truth in history is already altered. It's already embellished. It's already, to find an actual factual relay of history, I don't even know if it's possible. It's mm-hmm. written by someone else's perspective, and it's often written by the winner. I mean, when we look at what the Romans wrote about the Celts and the people they encountered and the barbarous people in the North, it's like, well, this is seen through Roman eyes. What were they actually like? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and- right. Well, and that was part of my, you know, as I was raised to believe the Bible and read the Bible. And then I started to go to some different Bible studies, if you will, or studies of different. And people started saying, well, maybe, you know, maybe it really wasn't like Noah's Ark or maybe it wasn't. I was like, what? You know, and it was kind of, it took me back initially when people started to talk about, again, maybe that really wasn't that, maybe that's just a story of like, you know, maybe that's just a metaphor. I'm like, what? I was raised to believe that that's exactly how it all happened. And um, it's still been a little like, okay. It's that whole part of, see, for me, Greek mythology, when I sobered up, it, it became almost like a Bible. I was just enthralled by it. And um, I love the Bible, too. I, I read the Bible pretty faithfully. And um, for me, I look at them, and I'm more of a, a person who looks at metaphor. Even my my first book, A Moment with Grace, so many people ask me, and they go, you know, did this happen or didn't this happen? Because there's a, a, right at the beginning, I tell people, it walks the line of metaphor, and it walks the line of reality. And a lot of people can't tell. They go, did this happen or didn't this happen? And that's the thing is metaphor and reality seem to blend together in so many literature works, including my own. So I can look at a Greek myth and go, you know, maybe, maybe someone like Theseus existed. Do I think he went and killed a minotaur in the labyrinth? Metaphorically, yes. Literally, no. (laughs) So there's wisdom to be had regardless whether it was true, whether it was metaphor, because there is truth in metaphor. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I shared this with you, but I have shared it on the podcast. Um, and there's a couple episodes about it, but I started ballroom dance lessons, just decided yes. to try something new in um, August of last year. And I have learned through my journey of learning to dance and doing a competition, like dance is just a metaphor for life. You know, that's what I found for myself is I even again, look, think of the competition day. And, you know, I wrote about it afterwards and shared it um, on social and with others. And just that idea of, I mean, so many things I learned there that I'm like, this isn't about the fact that I messed up the tango and I put my leg on the other, my leg on the other side when we went to turn. And um, it's about, as he told me, when we make a mistake, we just keep going. And that's about life, right? Cause that's exactly what we did. Like I put my leg on the other, I'm like, I've never done that before, but he corrected me. He looked at me, he said, okay. And then we go, he didn't say, okay, but he corrected me. And then we kept going. And I went mm-hmm. down with the Viennese waltz and, you know, you go down to a spot and then you turn and then you turn the other way. 
And I turned once way and I looked at him and I just froze for whatever reason. And he just looked at me, he said, turn. I'm like, okay, I'll turn. And then, and then I just kept going, but it was like this, oh my God, I could tell you all the mistakes. He goes, who cares? We kept going, right? So that's a metaphor for life. And when it was coming close to this, you know, part of the, part of what you can do with Fred Astaire dance and perhaps some other uh, studios is that you can go to these competitions. You know, you pay for them, you buy the sparkly dress, you do all of that, you know? And so it was introduced that idea of introduce, you know, he introduced it because he said, you have potential. And he says, I'm not going to suggest the idea of you doing this. If you're, if you, I think you're going to fail. So you should do this. Mm -hmm. And he kept encouraging me to do it. And I'm like, I don't think so. I mean, I really don't think he said, but you are. I mean, he, he poured all this belief into me. And I was talking with a friend of mine about like, why am I so like, I mean, crying, like really, like what is going on with this dance? And she said, well, you've been kind of praying for something that would come into your life that would kind of shift things, shift your business, shift your life. I'm like, I did not expect a 37 year old man from Moldova, you know, who I'm dancing with. But she said, and I was, I was, I was crippled with this fear. And yet my teammates and other people that I mentor, they're like, well, what would you say if somebody came to you and said, Hey, I have this opportunity to do a competition. Like, what would you say? I'm like, Oh, but I'm really afraid. And I don't really think I'm good enough. I'd be like, you are good enough. You are awesome. And like, imagine what you're going to learn from this and you ought to push past your fear. My girlfriend said, so do you see what's standing in your way? I'm like, that would be me. <laughs> but again, it wasn't about the money that I spent or the dress that I bought or the competition. It was about what I was, how I was showing up in my life and how mm. I, if I wanted to get to that next level and really change my life and really do what I was telling other people to do, I had to walk through that door of fear that was standing right in front of me. And I got to tell you, when I did that, I mean, I was so nervous and I, I'm going to go back and do another competition because I learned so much and I want to redeem myself, you know? Um, mm -hmm. But what I learned about myself and how I show up, you know, again, every day that I show up to that dance studio, as well as this competition, again, wasn't about the fact if I can do the Viennese waltz or do a tango or not, or look the part with when I do the tango, it's about can I get out of my own way, you know, and can I, Beautiful. you know, and I can, can I, as he said to me, he says, can you just look at the good that you just did? Cause you know how many people you inspired, let alone yourself. Like you've been here for six months and you went and did a competition and you you're taking home a medal and you're telling me how you messed up. But um, he said, you're telling me <laughs> how, like, look at the good. So again, it's not about, it's not about my dance. It's about life. And yeah. so it's a similar type of thing. I think, you know, no, it's exactly the same. It's about taking, it's recognizing that everything is applicable to life. You know, that we go through, whether it be a story, whether it be learning to dance, whether it be learning an instrument, whether it be um, how we do something is so indicative of how we do everything for that regard. Right. So if you're dancing and, you're deducing these lessons, which are marvelous. I mean, seeing that at times you can be pessimistic or at times you can be judgmental of yourself and dismiss the good. And then going, oh, my God, I'm doing that on a daily basis to myself. That's applicable, hard-earned wisdom. Mm -hmm. So I and, applaud you for doing that. Yeah. Well, thank you. And, you know, when I look at myself as a coach and coaching and inspiring other people and influencing them, I often think back, not think back, but I often think of my instructor and how he makes me feel when I leave and I come home, or even when I'm just there, like he makes me feel like I can do anything. And isn't that what, I mean, that's what I hope to do when I inspire people that to live a better life or to live a different life or to, you know, have a, their own entrepreneurial business or whatever the case is, I want them to feel like they can conquer the world. And mm -hmm. so isn't that a wonderful, I look back and say, okay, I, I didn't expect this, but this is showing me how I want to be as a leader. And what, again, I would have never expected, oh, okay, start ballroom dance and it'll help you be a better leader in your, in your life and your business. I'd have been like, you're full of whatever, <laughs> you know, I would have never expected that, but it's true. And so much, mm -hmm. again, so many other experiences. 
and things that we get involved in in our life can be that way. Yes. And it's all, that's the transmutation that you're doing in your life of changing experience into wisdom. And that's what, I mean, that's a beautiful story for that, of taking this risk, going like this, and then learning something, not just about life, but about yourself as well, that you can apply to improve your life on a daily basis. That's that's marvelous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I hope people hear that again, not to say, oh, wow, Moira is great, but just to know that people have the opportunity to do that. You know, every single mm-hmm. day when you try different things or you travel to other places or you're opening yourself up to a different idea, like you do have you know, a chance to, to learn and, you know, and gain a lot of wisdom by doing that. Yeah. And that's where, that's where life is found. It's just beyond the the borders of ordinary, if you will. Mm. So that's a beautiful story about challenging that and all the things you went through to, to learn dance and whether it be dance, whether it be travel, whether it be education, changing jobs, relationships, but to recognize the freedom that is on the other side of risk, that risk and freedom require each other and to step into that unknown and to see life in a different way. That's, that's mm. what it's about. Yeah. So do you put all of these, I know you wrote one book. Do you have other books that you've written or in the works? Cause again, your wisdom is, is awesome. <laughs> I could listen to you all day. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Um, a moment with grace is my first book and that was released in September. And, um, has a lot of my philosophical ideals in there, but also my own personal story from travels to love, grief and bereavement, death, um, questioning um, life, death, afterlife, difficult existential things like that. It's a very rich emotional read. And my second book so far, I think it'll be called, I mean, it could change when it gets to the publisher, but Awakening the Dream of Sobriety, and it's um, a memoir slash self-help about the first five years of my sobriety and what I believe is the cure for addiction. But that one, I just started writing a book proposal, so I wish I could get it out tomorrow, especially with um, the pandemic, the real pandemic of addictions and mental health that's going on right now. But it's a journey in itself. I don't think it'll be out for a year or two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um that's one thing that just breaks my heart uh, about this pandemic is that the struggle that uh, people are going through now, and I think that the world is in for in the next many years because mm-hmm. of what's happened to others. Um, I mean, there was just announced, I don't know, the last couple of weeks, I don't remember her name, but I didn't even know her, but she was some act actress who was on a popular type of series or something like that. But, and t- people didn't, I don't know, again, I don't remember all the details if people knew that she had an eating disorder or not, but during the pandemic, it got worse. She was not able to exercise. That was part of her way of staying, you know? I mean, that was one of her behaviors that she wasn't able to keep up and she struggled and struggled and she died. I mean, she died a few weeks ago of her eating disorder. And um, there's just so much, there's so much struggle because of this, that because we've closed, we've been forced to close ourselves off to others. and the idea of a hug. I mean, people know me as a hugger. They're like, you know, like I I love a good hug or just, I mean, I love talking with you over you're in Canada and I, that's great, but you know, being next to each other and going for a walk and it's just, we haven't been able to do that. And it's just, mm-hmm. it's killing us, you know, and it's, it just is. breaks my heart. No, it is. I was talking to someone the other day about that, about, you know, had I encountered this, global situation right now and i was sober for two months i don't know i don't know if i i I mean it's hypothetical but i definitely would have had a different struggle to contend with so people who have early sobriety or their sobriety isn't really firmly rooted they're being forged in fire right now it's a difficult time to set off because like you said zoom you know there's people go to AA and a meetings through zoom it's not the same we need mm-hmm. human contact. We need so the number one determining factor that they have ever found with either with grief and bereavement and outcome through loss or um, addiction recovery. The one separating factor is social support that separates everything. So now they have taken that away and um, we will see and are seeing the repercussions of cutting off human contact like that because Zoom doesn't do it. I'm not, I don't like technology. I would rather sit there with someone, have a chance to, to take their hand if they're crying, to genuinely be with someone. And Zoom, it's it has its opportunities, but not that. 
Not that, no. And that's what I, you know, want to spend the last few minutes, you know, talking about is just that fact that we were able to be with my mother during the last, you know, 10, 11 days of her life once, um, you know, the, the decision for hospice and palliative care was made, we brought her home. And my father struggled with, well, maybe we should keep her at the hospital because she could have an IV or maybe we should go to Johnson, which was a, uh, like a nursing home part of the complex that they live in. And I said, okay, so how often can we visit there? Well, once a week. I go, dad, she's not going to last a week. I mean, she lasted almost two, but the point is, I said, we need to be with her. You need to be with her. And that idea that we could come and go as we pleased to my father, which it, it exhausted him emotionally and physically. And yet he was able to be there with my mom and spend that time. And that was valuable for all of us. Mm-hmm. You know, those are the things that and I've heard horror stories from people who, you know, their mom took ill and they put her in the hospital and they couldn't visit her and she died alone. And I heard other times about, oh, they put them on Zoom. It's not the same. And those are things that, let's face it, the the dead feel no pain. I mean, they've moved on to wherever it is. But the people left behind, it is something that they will have to do a healing journey for of, you know, maybe I shouldn't have put my mom in there. Maybe I should have let her die at home where I could hold her hand and tell her I love her um, without some microphone in my face doing it. Mm -hmm. So... Again, these things we will see in the coming years and what the coronavirus has done is nothing compared to the the devastation that will follow with addictions, mental health, um, people who haven't been able to even I mean, even the element of the necessity for for rites of passages and rite of passage ceremonies. So graduation, um, retirements, whatever it may be, but marking this coming of age and they've stripped that away. And sure, people will go, oh no, you know, my daughter or son didn't have prom, but in the grand development of our life, we need certain things to occur, I believe. And a lot of people have to go back and somehow initiate it, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were talking about that, some, um, some of us and with my, I have a 17-year-old son who, is finishing up high school. And so they're um, coming up with some, you know, alternative things for prom. They're calling it prom-ish or tiger palooza because our, you know, it's the Wheaton Warrenville South Tigers. And so they're doing something outside and, you know, different than what a prom looks like. And then they always do an after prom. Um, where they can go and be safe, like locked in, as my son would say, yeah, but they lock you in. I'm like, well, they have to be responsible for you. So they lock the doors on the inside. You can't leave until it's over, but you have lots of fun. And they have, you know, laser tag and the casino room and like lots of fun things that they can do. But, and, and I was also speaking with a, a neighbor about college and experiences and you go to, co- they're sending all the kids back to school, but they have to be online anyway. And like, just like you said, like part of the rite of passage or the, you know, and I said to my son, um, is they're going to do graduation outside and at a different place? And he says, I don't even, I go, yes, you know what? You're going to walk graduation because you know what? It is the end of your schooling here. Mm-hmm. And it's also the end of our era as parents because he's our last son. And I said, then it's like, thanks for the memories you know, school system in Wheaton, Illinois, like it's partly for us too. So we have yeah. to, you know, and last year in, you know, last year it was a, again, a zoom graduation and drive through blah, blah, whatever. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. So it's like, but you have to do that again. It's, it's that right of, and college is not just about the academics. It's about It's that social part. It's that experience and getting away from home and learning how to do your own laundry and figuring out how to be friends with somebody you don't, you were forced to be a roommate with and you had to learn how to get along. It's like all of those things that. And that's where, um, I mean, there's opportunity in this and people are doing some beautiful things to try to honor these, these coming of age ceremonies and stuff. But at the same time, it's necessary in our personal evolution, especially the, the social support surrounding it and the um, the celebration of it. I mean, it's just not the same. And don't get me wrong. It's, as I said, there's opportunity in it. It's what we make of it. 
but I hope that it's at least recognized that a lot of these things may have to be revisited. And let's just hope a lot of time doesn't slip by and, you know, you're 28 and then you're going to prom. <laughs> I don't know about that one. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, someone said, a gal that I spoke with a couple of weeks ago, she said that her daughter, who's a freshman and, you know, who missed the graduation last year, they're talking about perhaps recreating something that she can come back to. And I said, do you think that they'll, she'll come back? And she goes, yeah, my daughter would. She says, I don't think, I don't know if everybody would, but there would be some that want to come back and just, like you said, have that experience of closing one's, one thing and moving on, you know, and mm -hmm. giving that, giving that honor. So exactly. Yeah. So much more we could talk about, but I'm watching the time. So, um, I mean, how would you, <laughs> what would be your last, I don't know, your last words, you have so many of them. So I have a hard time just saying, give me a few last words, but you know, again, I think you've shared so much wisdom about, about life and being flexible and being open. And I mean, I'll let you wrap it up with your thoughts because I've, I've got so much from, from it, but you know, how would you kind of end our conversation here today? It all comes back to, um, again, humility and entertaining another person's ideal or idea. And, not subscribing so vehemently to our own and saying, you know, this is the way it has to be, whether it's in with addicts and recovery of stepping away from the dogma and, you know, maybe AA isn't right for this person. So allow them to try a different avenue. And then same with hospice. I mean, I worked with people who were dying and we didn't share the same faith. However, I had no problem praying to their concept of God with them. So it's that humility, because in humility comes connection to people of different faiths, different beliefs, different cultures. So just recognizing that in order to have connection, we need to be flexible and we need to meet people halfway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. Uh, where can people find you if they want more of you? Facebook, Nicholas Goodman, my author page is there. Um, Instagram, Nicholas underscore underscore Goodman. And then my website is www.nickgoodman.ca. Okay. I'm on those three places. I'm trying not to go on much more social media. I try to limit my time on there. Mm -hmm. I know it's a, you know, it's, it's, it's a necessary evil, you know, exactly. I think, um, you know, it can be uh, really good and bad, but again, I know that my guests um, do like to connect with, uh, or my listeners like to connect with my guests and um, I like to stay connected with you um, with mine as well. So um, I love that idea, that book. I'm going to check that out. Um, I know that that's how I can get more of you and um, other listeners can get more of you. And I'm assuming, I know that's on your, your website as well, right? The link to your yeah. book. Yeah. yeah. It's on my website and on social media. I'm always sharing links and quotes and stuff like that from it. Yeah. I shared one of your quotes the other day on my on my wall. So, um, I oh, follow you. you there. Yeah. Yeah. You're welcome. So thank you, Nicholas, Nick. Um, however you want to be called again, just thank you for the connection today. This has been, um, been wonderful. Um, I know my listeners have found value as I have my previous guests who I spoke with, uh, I've got five interviews today, so I'm back you're to busy. back and I'm busy, but he said, uh, he found a quote last week or yesterday on Instagram saying, you know what, I couldn't afford, I, I couldn't afford a therapist. So I started a podcast and I was like, that's it. I mean, that's it for me. This has provided so much, um, so much for me as well as for my listeners. So um, today is no exception. So I appreciate your time today. I appreciate you having me. I've learned a lot too. It's a, a two way street we're walking. So it's been nice to spend a moment with you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. And if you get to the States, I know this isn't one of your favorite spots, um, the Midwest and Chicago, but if you ever want to come to Chicago, um, well, well, that's another discussion. I was going to say it's a wow. great, it's a great city. Um, it has become less than um, of late. And I, I grieve that because Chicago is a great city. There's so much to offer, such great food and, you know, history there. So, but I hope to get to Greece one day. Maybe when I go there, I'll look you up and you can provide Let some wisdom know. for the travels there. Yeah. I may even be there. We can share an espresso and a nice conversation. That would be awesome. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Nicholas. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. And thanks again, listeners. Um, 
do as I always say, please share this with others. Um, That's how we get the word out um, and can have others uh, hear this wonderful wisdom. So have a great day and we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head over to iTunes and leave me a five-star review. Share it with others and make sure you hit the subscribe button so you don't miss a thing. I've got a tribe over on Facebook, so head over there and search for Juggling the Chaos of Recovery Podcast Tribe. And do you know somebody who has a story, a story to share, a story of recovery and hope? Please let me know as I'd love to feature them as a guest on one of these next upcoming podcasts. And perhaps you're looking for a community of like-minded, collaborative, and supportive people who cheer each other on as we strive to improve our lives. If that sounds like something you've been looking for, schedule some time with me. You'll find the links in the show notes. Let's talk and let me help you find your way. And I'm here to tell you that you're worth it.